0: Aloha Pods presents Moment to Moment, a series of intimate conversations with influential artists revealing the formative moments that have helped shape the artists they have become today. From Oscar-winning writers and directors to Grammy-winning performers and songwriters, listen in as each guest shares their most personal struggles, their greatest victories, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Moment to Moment is about the defining moments that have helped turn what was once a dream into a reality. Listen and subscribe now at alohapods.com. won five MTV Music Awards and six Cable Ace Awards. your 11,000 Instagram followers the moments that we're going to clip out from these stories, and if we go along, we'll make another time to do part two if you so had the time. Oh, that's right. So, yeah, we picked out something that's really close to my heart. I, I actually felt that might be the case. It's funny. Nick Jagger hired directors one time. I work on them seven specials in a row. He only even hires four the way it happened was he kind of got forced to make me by HBO and then kind of hit him off and he offered me the job to do mm-hmm. live versus 490, so now it's a So, when I was on the screen, I'm the last person, which I always really am anyway, but in this case, the surveillance phones, I'm the last person to say what's going to go on the air. Right. Now, uh, they're normal records, a normal 404 band. Down everything in time, and what happens is, is that Nick go down the verse and during the verse there'll be some guitar guitar fills and there'll be all kinds of uh, you know little moments uh, that Mick being insecure that you know he has to carry the show is always doing great business during guitar fills. He just doesn't sit there; he's working. Because he's doing great business, I understand it, but I took the attitude that Mick was the brains of the Rolling Stones. The the balls and the beating heart was Keith Richards. Uh So what I decided to do was, on every guitar fill and every moment I could, Keith was also doing great business. I went to Keith, and so at the end of the show, there was a a lot more Keith than he'd ever seen before.
1: be on, and then Keith saw it the next morning, and you know, I like, got
0: uh, flowers, and Keith Richard's like, my book is going to be Keith's 70 flowers, that, and I got about that, and I think Nick secretly liked that, because it took the pressure off a little bit of yeah. that, I a little bit during those moments because I was be focused on Keith. He you know, you know, never the that to me, and I think that's what happened. And that's why he kept coming to me. Um, I shot him live in New York, I shot him in Paris, Yeah, uh, a little theater, you know, I shot him in Amsterdam, I shot him in London, I shot
1: him in Rio de Janeiro, two million people. Just and he's famous for that old running gun kind of
0: guy the fact that he came back with you so many times so these accent shots you cut to Keith on it so that you were the first director to actually focus on bringing in that element actually yeah no well, I know anybody could not bring it in well that yeah. they were watching when I was watching it just kind of surprised me yes Nick has bigger gestures he's doing all this cool shit yeah. alright and it's vibey moments, it brings across the rolling stones. And the right mm-hmm. of Charlie, like that, Ronnie Wood, they're all the of Charlie's, the simplest looking drummer you've ever seen, Dan, the most important person in the band. And Nick says that over and over again, that the stones would be nothing without Charlie, you know, keeping them all re- the together. So he sent you flowers and Ronnie Page, you know, a wonderful drawing I saw on your Instagram. That had to feel really special to receive. Yeah, that's a nice time for debating what it really Forget where I, were. I think it might have been Rio. You know, you know I mean, travel with the oh, travel with the president. Yeah. I mean? So I got up there playing. I'm walking from the guitar back to the terminal, which is about three feet. And Ronnie handed me this picture and he says, You know, I did this on the plane. Uh, I like, went, Oh my God, I, don't I really am. He's a fine artist. I absolutely so his and I do more, of course. To try to and he's just trying to get him to buy more art. Yes, <laughs> that's how you do it. Um, well, obviously, Mark is an anti-establishment, rabble-rousing youth. Coming of age in the 60s and 70s, there had to feel like some type of a surreal dream come true moment when working with the Stones. I to not know. I remember one time, I we went to see Stones College we and went to see another one and couldn't get in. Gideon. And then the year I wanted to do it, the year for Aerosmith's Crying because sat down really close to the stage uh, and the stomachs performed. And I turned to my wife and Lisa and said, I gotta do this. I've, I've got to do it. I have to do this. I just have to do it. But I'm I am blood. And I realized what it was going to turn into. No. And I didn't have time to think about it. I just went with the flow. And, you know, I tried to be a little bit different each concert, but I went Paris. Those There's something different than the one in New York. And we're They're all distinctively different. In fact, um, yeah, they're different. Yeah, I want to just mention well, the talent, which we're going to dive right into to our audience out there with a career so vast, with so many dozens and dozens of accolades like our guest, Marty Coleman, it has to, it would just be a total injustice to try to spend an hour superficially skimming from mountaintop to mountaintop for those who may not be familiar with Marty's work, his legendary background up to a great conversation he had with D. Snyder on a podcast called Snyder's Comments where they walk through his old friend from the beginning. The first video Marty ever did was Twisted Sister. We're going to give some love and promotion toward that. But for here, our show, we're interested in the moments that have helped make you you and perhaps have helped make you make art that will bring in the shiny objects as need be. And all the surveillance and research, if you will, that we have done, the two dominant themes that come up, Marty, are one, your relentless taking of risks with safety net, and that frequently leads to number two, which is your creation of magic. And oftentimes these occur in intertwined moments, but I want to start with one such case. If we could, there you are, it's 1983, you're about 35 years old, in demand, building wealth, how the world by the balls, and out of the blue, the first magical moment comes to you on Z Channel. Can you share with us what happened? First of all, I have to say, you're the first person I ever talked to that's what I'm all about. Oh, wow. uh, is magic. Yeah. Okay. And, and uh, taking risks. Thank Those you. Those are the two things that make up Marty Calder. And I use my name in the third person yeah. because you nailed it. Now in 1983, I was yes, I had a big job
1: at HBO. I was making a huge salary. Seven fingers? <laughs> yes. And I had a
0: beautiful home in Beverly Hills, four kids with <laughs> my wonderful. And this music video came on what was called the same channel at the time. It was Eddie Dean's Eyes, directed by Russell Buckeye, signed Tim Cards. Mm-hmm. I went, can I curse? Yes, please. And I went, holy shit. I said, what is this? I can't, I don't know. Oh, how are they doing this? Because they were breaking every rule, okay? They were jump-cutting, they were crossing the law. sign of it. for our audience, Russell, okay, went on to iconic 1980s fantasy action adventure film, Highlander. He went on to many music videos. So this was an important person in the movement at the time. I'm sorry, Marty, to cut you off there. No you're, no, no, you're telling me right. He really was. So I said to her, I've got to do this. I said, that means that I'm to lose the house, not going the salary, and, you know, I don't know what I was going to be like. And she said, go for it which i I loved her ever before and never since then. I mean, ever since I loved her before, but I'm you know, not really like, wow, we're going we're one. One to get to that right now. I have this question I've been burning to ask you. As a risk-taking artist at that time, how important is that level of devotion and support from your woman, especially when one hadn't quite found their creative identity or voice yet? It was really important, but I was going to do it anyway. was continuing to grow, continuing to reinvent myself. And I started as doing sports and Boston Celtics. I had a fight to get into music, I had a fight to get into all these things. But I operate under what I call the Red theory, okay. which is research, surveillance, execution, and domination. And so I went to New York and I met with, and I got these partners to help me. I went to New York, and I met with a guy named Oman Erdogan. And for those of you who don't know, Oman I Erdogan, I believe, sign the thumbs and what's up there. Yeah, I around the land. I have records, and, Yes, you know, correct. And I said to him, well, I had someone on a name at this point. I said, I want to do a music video. I looked look at me like from yours. You know, you know, they were a huge success. And then he's got this bar band that I don't know quite what to do with. He doesn't want to say her name, Twisted Sister. So I thought that there was a unique
1: hybrid of comedy and rock and roll yeah. that fit my personality. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll do
0: Twisted Sister. Now, the first song we're not going to take is because something else out and I sent a telegram At that time telegrams and done wars. just to make you make a hit out uh, your first single or I'm going to take he, he went for it and go <laughs> for you're spending your money and go for like because I just liked it I was laughing so hard. And, you know, it was the first video to have a narrative at the beginning, a story, a setup. Okay, and the video was the punchline to the setup, and the idea was to the you know, uh, and child. But um, no blood or anything, but, but anyway, so that happened. Oh, Riley, right, well, you guys had one before the assholes in front of Congress of Zap on D and all that argument. i remember in kind meantime, talking assholes. I thought in order to be a senator of congressman, you had to be like someone from if I make out I couldn't believe of them. Records, which made record sales double. And it every time the kid sold all sticker, he built a record That's how dumb the guys like an MTV were to sell through something like the singer at the end of the uh, try and try and try and try and try and they just made the known and try well, and try right? and then, and and to wrap videos and it on the back. Of the, uh, <laughs> they just, it just about, so they thought they didn't know what to say. Right. Start their imagination. Well, you've always and really knew that. how to do that better than, than all of them, is to stir the imagination yeah. provocative yeah. They did me a favor
1: and for the next 12 years. I didn't have
0: an agent or a manager. I just said And what happened was people would say, just like I saw, and, say, and it just went all along, and I honestly believed, and I still believe, that I was only as good as my last project. And if I didn't do a good job, there'd be a thousand people to take my place, and I would never let it out until I was happy with it. And that's why I insisted on Final Cut. Probably one video. I think we did 16, I don't know, but because if I was going to fail, I wanted to be on my own sword, not because of a was sitting in an office trying to justify his existence or her existence, and because I grew up in the Midwest. I had Midwestern taste. It's not New York and L.A. that make the taste. Uh, it's the Midwest that makes the taste. Uh, and so if I liked it. And I loved it. When I left my hands, I was reasonably sure that the audience would like it. And that's what happened. And I was very tough on myself. And I just went to it out until so I love. it. Every single frame. I knew how people watched these videos. I'm going to jump into like three things at once here. So a part because it's so brilliant. You know, I know you were hard for 40 years. coming from a place of fear, of failure. You once said, I thought if I got one frame wrong, I'd never work again. Okay. Who was that? How no, it was for you? Uh, uh yeah. Got so don't I not like, your experience on that hard video where there's that moment that you kind of didn't sit well with you and then it went out. Well, at that point was well-established. Okay, okay. But, but that's the only time. It was the close of the man Wilson. I wasn't fluttering. I ran out. And, of course, I hate the video because of it. And that's the only time in the whole run. that was shot went out. I was under pressure every time. You know, it happens. Mistakes happen. All right, so I, I regret that. I still regret it to this day. When you bring it up, it's
1: things back. and
0: The you're not as good as they say, right now, as they say. Uh, what? Well, well, yeah. Right, Zeroing one million. The only million. Yeah. Thanks for remembering here. Well, what I'm talking uh, about is this is that uh, for the first 15 years, you said you, you felt like you were faking it. And then you said form follows times. And you came to where it came from the inside, not about the outside. Where did that sort of come to you? How do you feel like that informed the next 25 years? Five years of what you put on? Okay. That I would make everything beautiful, that I would keep getting hired because everything's so gorgeous. Nobody has ever seen shown that look like that. Uh And uh, I was relentless. And I did things like with Diane Ross and Steam's Palace, where which changed, redefined HBO's recognizability in the music business and their credibility. And she was everything was white. The engineers told me at that time, you can't do that. The cameras can't take it. So, I mean, she went and everything away. And I used low <laughs> contrast filters and figured it out. And they had this glow. And so, along the way, I saw this movie called The Mission. Probably don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. It was the most gorgeous movie I'd ever seen in my. life the worst story I'd ever seen. i had ever seen on a was board. And I said, it's got to be about the content. It's got to be to reach people in their hearts. So then I just started focusing on the content. And I made everything beautiful because I knew how. And my thing was I didn't understand this, this part of it. Okay, and I was just kind of fooling people. I was fooling myself. And so I became a different director so make things beautiful, because that's what I do mean now, but I'm in a position in my life now, where I have an unbelievable shot of a crane going over a crowd through a window down the street, blah, 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 or a really, not a great shot, but a great performance, and I'm thinking about it every, every time. Yeah. So that's what I mean by 4.0. And I think you've learned how to have it for college, with Bob Klein, and said, some of the things you learned that it can be the ugliest shot, but if it has feeling and magic, then it works, and I'm glad you're kind of teasing that here. I know as far as shooting beautiful women, you would occasionally or eventually always personally operate the camera. What do you feel it gave you, and how how did you shoot it differently when you were operating versus you had a DP or cinematographer doing it? Okay, that's another great question. Let's say I'm shooting this baby next video, right? I know that somewhere in that valley track and in that focal length that I'm going to find the sweet spot. Yeah. So if I shot it, when I got to editing, I had more choices. If I shot it, I would throw away all the garbage. It's nobody's fault. It's just that. It, for me, it just made it better. It's an efficient yeah. I of the filter. to you to the camera and also um, with my eyes and then kind of being you'll I feel like I'm in the scene with the artist and, and I'm able to like be close to all um, you and uh, it's just worked out for me I think most everybody here I know I'm on my D.P. but most of my you know I just share a book with Mr. Rutherford and Mr. Rihanna and uh, yeah, I've shot every piece of that you know and you know, I'm, I'm like you know and I'm like that's That's wonderful to help understand as an auteur getting more intimate like that help probably your artist feel more vulnerable and express more. You touched on your eye growing up, and I want to talk about this. I think this is so fascinating. There's three moments I want to get to. You've intimated that your eye may have been developed in part unbeknownst to you as a child. The question is, how did young Sonny from lower middle class Chicago to some of the finest artwork on the planet growing up. Man, it really your shit. Uh, okay. I grew up, I had a doll up for and Sunny was my nickname. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, in Chicago. What happened was that my father left the family when I was two years old, and I never saw him again. I don't have any ill feelings for him. Wrong. My mother would say, You're just like your father, so i say, You must be something to a guy. And I'm to write that down. Uh, and we lived lower middle class. All right. My mother somehow struggled to um, buy a 30 year mortgage of $38,000 house. And, you know, we weren't we were living high. By any stretch of the imagination, she struggled. She had three jobs. And then, incidentally, she's the reason I am who I am today. I didn't realize you'd up, but I learned a lot about osmosis. So what happened was, when my father died, my very, very, very wealthy family in Chicago said, so we have to culture this guy up down at my house in Cincinnati on the walls like pictures from wall marble ships and landscapes and he you had know, garbage. He the walls and none of the her because she would take it from every different restaurant you know, <laughs> it was just stolen sweet low contact. I mean, you know, she she was not sending money. She was struggling. I got it. I remember I, I understood completely. I started working, I was nine years old, I said, I wanna bite she says go Do door. So I sold TBI and story door. And I walked at the door and I said, I wanna bite me by <laughs> So they decided to reculture me yeah, up, and all of a sudden, I went from a very mundane art world to being in a penthouse at the Drake Hotel in Chicago with original Monets, original Picasso's, original Chabots, etc., etc., etc. And you can obviously see the difference. Right. And I didn't know what... These were original. Mm-hmm. Okay, Mark Chagall was, my uncle was one of his best friends, and they were, you know, along with Kurt Douglas. Mm-hmm. And so, Mike Wallace got married, my aunt's apartment, and they were people royal Chicago cell phone. Wow. So, you can't even believe how it was. Mm-hmm. It was like fine china, and up and limousines. Mm-hmm. When well, I went somewhere, I my brain, and I could see the difference. And so, I developed an eye. Right, so it somehow inform your subconscious, but then I think later on when you were uh, there'll be a later moment that then maybe activated your conscious. I'd like to ask you about the creative consciousness. Can you tell us how it came that you went from being the rebel rouser in college to sitting under a tree for a few months reading the likes of Gibran and Nietzsche? You already know the story. I'm trying to leave uh, that <laughs> Tell my head, you know, I was a rabble rouser, a womanizer, a, a gambler, a drug taker, everything you can think of. A friend of mine went to Berkeley, and he came back, there it was somewhere, my, I think, my sophomore year, and he brought this cow, this capsule with synthetic psilocybin in it. He went down, because it was so illegal, he went down to the refineries. Got a uh, uh, motel for like five bucks. We opened up this capsule and poured in a glass of water. And we shared the glass of water. I must have got the most <laughs> because
1: I got stuck. And all of a sudden, I can hear the bugs on
0: the trees. I noticed the arrow in the ax I noticed the little green tea in the of Things I have seen all the time, but never registered. Mm-hmm. And well, I think it did for me, it that was like really three months, I I didn't really, I didn't literally, I mean, not bad, it was very pleasant, and that's why I sat punching people, I was, you know, I became the philosopher, and all of a sudden, I wanted to be the president of the fraternity, rather than not anyone let me in, and I remember the day, it brought, and, I, and I loved it, but I wasn't willing to go back. So uh, I think what happened was it opened up the creative side of my brain. Wow. And I think the drug did. Yeah. And I think it was always in there. But the way they teach you in school, you know, there was a reason I could never pass out. There's There was a reason that I hated school so much. There was a reason that I used to sit in sixth period and just watch that fucking clock. So, <laughs> And that was because they were not encouraging my creative side. You know, they tried to make me into a newer robot. I can't do with everybody at school. You can you do your degree you go into business, blah, blah, blah. Because so I was an artist. And that made me realize. As an artist, and from there everything changed, and that's where I was into And I want, to, with those formative moments in mind, I want to dive into your craft and process, as you just said. As an artist, let's talk about song choice when it comes to making a music video. You said before, no matter how good a director I was, if I had a bad song, it wasn't going to work. No matter how good a director I was, pick a bad song, wasn't going to be good. You stand by that. Song is the script, and if you have a great song. the secret you found to picking one that had the magic? I, I don't know. It's just a feeling. You know, you hear me many you have David Comet and one's me, does not make yourself that? Yeah. And I think there's something to that. I know it sounds simple, but I think there's something to that. So I think I was smart enough to change songs that I could turn and then take them up to a new level. I mean, I don't right. have a few bad songs along the way. Well, I was going to ask you one more time when you were giving a lousy song, but you had to make a video for it anyway. A couple of times. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, I, and, 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 you know, we're bragging about those videos. No, know we're not. So, you're yeah, yeah. they're not. I mean, they're not horrible, but they're not hits. You know, so make your making the heart feel something. Right. You know, and I know song influences my editing. I think one of the best things I do is my editing That's all about the beat and the music and I uh, mad, I'm going to get that. Yeah, about the rhythm in just a second It's wanted to help our audience follow So the song is chosen And I've never heard you speak to this And I have a hunch what comes next Actually has as much to do with your magic that you create And that is the step where the song infects you You Marty begin to dream with it And the muse begins to pay you a visit What's that process like for you? It's different on uh, every project. Now, in the very beginning, it was almost impossible because I didn't have my brain trained to be able to understand how to be creative and write a video. Right. And then I would stare at a page hours and hours and hours until an idea came to me. And then, as my career progressed, I started to get to the point where I was creative all the time. Became the muscle of just working, and because of doing it so much in the repetition, and that I can run it many more time times. Uh, so that's how it happened, you know. I just and that's where I am today. You know, I'm creating all the time. What are the rituals that you have found now to induce the creative mood? How do you find getting yourself in a space where that damster can get on the wheel more efficiently? I never leaves the wheel. <laughs> that's uh, right. Okay, at the point now where I'm at. Uh, Constantly doing is adjusting. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have an idea I think it's great, and then all of a sudden I say, wait a second, this is better. In the same way, when I create shows and things like that, you know, I know you're going to get to that eventually. But yeah, I created a hard time two thousand and yet for HBO. I mean, went before and I thought I would let nobody in there. Now there's a rule that you must let Marty in there. <laughs> I'm right. up. Sure. I, I, I executive producing and creating, but. I don't do it anymore, and I'm actually, it's really always been done by NFL Films. Smart enough to hire NFL Films, and never smart enough to hire a Schreiber. And I just sit back and enjoy, and I got a train camp, and the only time I ever say anything is when there's not enough to leave Schreiber in it, because he's the storyteller. Yeah. And, yes, I created that the way I sold it was crazy. You know, it's all. The NFL said, if you get HBO, we'll consider it. If you, it if you get HBO, we'll consider it. If I play the major, I have both of them. i mean, lucky. Right. lucky because we I'm trying to get these NFL owners, that this choice should be. And an idea that was going to really revolutionize the way they presented their game without their franchises. Two guys who recognized them, one was Jerry Jones and the other guy, was the coach of the Baltimore Ravens, Brian Billick, that yep. would come out of PR. I uh-huh. said, I'll do that. It just so happens that the Ravens have won the Super Bowl the year before. Uh-huh. So wow. we had the Super Bowl champion in our first year. That's that's incredible. The only other time I've seen that's that luck. Well, you say luck. The luck comes to the prepared mind and preparation and execution, research, you know, domination. and domination. that's all a part of it. And a lot of people before, which is something also that I try to teach people. You must take advantage of every opportunity. You never know who's watching. You never know who's listening. Don't blow your opportunities. If you don't ball, you get more opportunities. And if you're ball, there are thousands of, thousands of people who want you to you And not only that, perhaps can I add to that somebody could read an opportunity, and I'm thinking of John O'Connor, New Year's Eve, 1975, and it's like, oh my God, and I'd love to talk about how these four decades were kicked off by that very first magical moment at Haverford College, and this unbelievable but true story of the kids of dominoes, that you could share, if so that's okay, if I get started to of put you on the spot. Okay. It was the first special for HBO. I challenged HBO or NBC because they promised me could do their specials. And it was an evening with Robert Clyde and Hammerford College. though know, we had never shot stand-up before on television. Uh-huh. And so we did it at Hammerford College because our boss, of HBO was a guy named Jerry, the man. He went to Hammerford College, and we thought he'd give us some more money. Uh-huh. We did it there. <laughs> and he did. And we did. I don't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> okay. I got instinct, and I did things that nobody had ever done before. I went and took a studio camera and put on somebody's shoulder and went down the bowels and did a barricade thing with Barbara Clyde. But when you look at it close, you see how bad I fucked it up because you know, I was on a water, lens. This hands will take still had magic that There wasn't enough close-ups, and I mean, I took a bath, My boss said, yeah, you're done.
1: I'm not going to air this. So I called my ex-wife and I said, did I get my
0: $14,000 a year job at WBC back? That was a TV director. And she said, what the hell did you do? I said, I, I thought I created magic. Um, I guess I must be alone. So we of the man and this guy had an argument of whether to air it or not. And Ben said, I don't think it's so bad. And we got, it's got some done. And we got all these subscribers. This is our program guy. We're going to so here I am in New York City. It's freezing cold. It's New Year's Eve. I'm
1: all alone. I lived in Boston. Um, the bad as depressed as anybody
0: can ever be. You lost your job. Yeah, I did lose my job. I thought maybe I could fight for it. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I lost my job, but I certainly lost my job. Mm-hmm. And the next day, John O'Connor, God bless him, mm-hmm. wrote four columns in the New York Times
1: on this program as part of an innovative process. Blah, blah,
0: blah, blah, blah. I've already called it. And the next thing I knew, I was hired back at ten times the money. And then a series called On uh, Location, which featured young comedian shows. And then a series called City Remotely, which was music shows like Wise and Glad Sight, and Ray Charles. And that awesome. and then I was like, Satan's viral review. The the crazy is the and, and, and monetarily, you went from, what, 45 grand a year or some lower paying thing to just skyrocketing up. That next day, I went from 35 to 350 overnight. Right. But what did you get away from that? In I turn on the holiday season for you guys, right? Yeah, there was a lot of money back there. part of the brain says there's nothing more intoxicating than coming to terms with it. Times article came out and you were then validated by HBO with your, what became now, iconic, over-the-shoulder shot. Every friggin' comedian takes walking out on the stage. You go ahead and say, no, I went for you. I went went, went all the way down to the basement where his dressing room was. And Saturday, I was said (laughs) how much time we got? in terms of the Conan O'Brien quote, did you come, is that the moment where you came to terms with an ability or trusting, your creative instincts in some way? 100%. Right. Right. And I didn't need the New York Times review to have that feeling. I thought the guy was wrong. I knew that there was magic on that, okay? It may not have been technically the way he wanted it, but I knew magic came across. And that's what I try to do to every project, is give him magic. And how would you just that? What is that? You can't you can't describe it. mm-hmm. It's a feeling. Okay, it's a complete feeling. You know, it's intangible. I just know when it happens. And that's what I try to do. And that's why I take risks. Because I create magic moments. Yeah. And, and that's the name of the game. Okay. Magic is the name of the game. It's not magical, it's not memorable. Listen, I'm most proud of the fact that I'm putting up some of these videos from 25, 30 years ago. They're holding up. And the thing that I have directed to me holds up and is just as entertaining today as it was back then. And that's why every frame matched the other reason that every frame thing came from. Is I used to see the way people watched MTV. They didn't, like, stare at the TV. They'd be in the middle of a conversation, and they glance over their shoulder, and they'd see a little bit and see a little bit. Well, MTV times, so many times, eventually, they saw the whole thing. So in their unconscious, uh, have all positive, wonderful images, <laughs> there, um, and that, that would have that feeling. And that's what happened. And I've seen videos growing careers. the numbers. <laughs> and then when they see it again, you know, that was my track I think we're talking, we're getting the domain of your, your Marty signature moves or the special sauce. And I think it's two parts you're saying, uh, I'm not, forgive me, you are saying. It's one, it's the magic, the, the Marty magic that you can't tell anyone when you go to McDonald's. It's a burger, good or for a tire, Starbucks for coffee. You want magic? You call Marty. That I think became industry known. But number two is that you would make these stars, especially your women, larger than life. And they all look exquisite every time. You know, well, my son always says to me, you make stars, and you make stars bigger stars. I've right? also discovered well, a lot of young talent, or they have like huge careers. I looked at my crime video yesterday, Alicia Sosa, and Josh Holloway, yeah. and Stephen Dorf, yeah. You know, and then there's Liv Tyler, and then Carla you know, I just honestly, Frank is based on a gut better- theory. I would say it's paraphrasing your life's experiences and your life's taste. So when you say at least Silverstone, I think you went through like, what, 30, 40,000 feet of film to connect like 20 seconds of magic. People don't know yeah, that hell is thrown away right? That, and that's the point. They don't know. They do know what they see. Because I'm wanting to make it all magical. Six weeks later, she was on the cover of Rolling Stone. The rest of the sister, is it true you hired Stephen Tyler's daughter for that video not knowing live Stephen Tyler's daughter, or is that myth? That's correct. what happened was, as I was thinking of a foil for and crazy, mm-hmm. and I saw this Pantene commercial, and I thought that dark hair, and she was young, along with Alicia's blonde hair, it would give me really good contrast. I even think she knew she was Stephen Tyler's daughter. <laughs> right? That's the matter of And that when I hired her, you know, I'm getting a couple names together. Someone said, you know, you just hired Steven Tyler's daughter. And I said, oh, my God. And it's like, I'm happy with the video. (laughs) (laughs) And the dance club scene, I imagine, sure. (laughs) Uh, But again, I'm reviewing that video again. You're such a master storyteller. you can always tell the craft of a master storyteller. If you can watch it on you, turn the sound off. Does the feeling still convey in that video? I never thought about that. Oh. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you watch that, and does the feeling convey the opening shot? You have the reverse reflection of the sign over the car, you look at all these choices, that in the cuts from the kid in the... Think about the amount of cuts, yeah, Ian, the amount of, like, six seconds of space where he's swimming in the river and he disappears and chasing his clothes. You tell 25 minutes of story in six shots in, like, ten seconds. I have to. Right. Because you're right. concerned I Okay, well, here's what I'm talking about. Jack Nicholson was having bi-coastal relations, right. and he would fly from the West Coast to the East Coast, back and forth, back and forth. And, and most directors would have taken a shot of him packing, or him getting in a taxi cab, or arriving at the airport, or buying a ticket, whatever. Now, I don't know whether he did this because of money or anything. He just took a picture I'm a plane going one direction, and I'm a plane going the other direction. wrote him a letter that said that uh, I was just starting out that, uh, can I please work on you? i work for nothing. I just want to sit next to you uh, never answered me back. But uh, that was okay. But I ended up directing a play that he did, the Broadway play, and I did the television. And I got to meet him, which was Whoopi Goldberg. So, so I got my dream. Uh, I, got to, I got to meet him. Uh, I, or I'll tell you the parallel did I happened to become friendly with John Cleese uh, and recently and John's a wonderful artist and was very close to Mike I believe he spoke at Mike's wedding and John would constantly share about uh, something that I think shows up in your work and here is the connective tissue both you and Mike Nichols convey emotional truth at whatever 26 frames a second with characters in a heightened states of reality but that's what I think you do well and that's what I think he did well two completely different ways that got to the human condition, what is it Marty Cohn understands about emotional truth and the human condition that other directors don't? You know, it's a tough question, but I'm going to try and give you the best answer I can. Mm -hmm. I grew up when I Okay, It was a tough childhood, really tough. it taught me how to be a survivor, which made me able to get through the rest of my life. Without that, I wouldn't have been able to do it. I was not a single mom. I saw what she went through. So I developed compassion for women. Is not a reason why I shoot them so well. I can't say I have that same compassion. for men. You know, I never met a woman who was a bully. I met lots of guys who were bullies. Right. And so I really do love. exactly but I think that's what it is. And how much of your talent would you say simply comes back to your heart and your willingness to share your heart with these artists? I think that's part of it. I think hard work and preparation is the only part. Right, you know when you're sitting there you have that interview with Mick Jagger, you spend an hour later you know you're at your daughter's soccer game and you get that phone call that doesn't happen if you're in there guarded and not being willing to be vulnerable and at the same time have an incredible strategy. That's it it feels like those are two rounds of the same coin. We call it brooks. I just can Captain remember we had nominated for ten enemies, I think we won three, she won, I didn't win. But HBO said to me, you know, we'd like you to have me with coin brooks, I'm sorry, but from the state, didn't she actually say this is yours? How do you know this? I don't know, not seeing that unless I think it's in now pushing my four o'clock back. <laughs> 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 uh, I don't know how you live this. Yes, she, did. she said, I mean, it belongs to Marty Coleman, and she tried to give it to me. Uh-huh. Uh, she inside gave me a picture of Frank with, with uh, love, honor, and respect. That was about love song. Wow. Because it didn't start out that way. So I can tell you that one. I'm not going you, too. It's heading into Garth. So now, Garth Brooks. I go to meet him as production company Rank Car in mm-hmm. um, 20th Century Fox lot. I'm feeling pretty cocky, you know. I,
1: I, you know, I'm feeling, oh, this motherfucker could be lucky to work my ass, mm-hmm. and
0: i go into it all. For about an hour, telling real. And then when I got up and I said, it okay, I'm leaving. I said, thank you very much for your time. He says, I'll see you in New York. <laughs> so, so I think if you're real, yeah, no matter who you are, I think you've got to be real. Alright? And it's, it's even more than It doesn't work, phony doesn't work. Intimidated. I was never intimidated by any of these people. Mm-hmm. And I knew, you know, and at the bathroom set my said You know, said so right. it was I was ne- I was never intimidated. I was, you know, I thought when I left Big Jagger, I thought, well, you know, if i don't get the job, at least I spent an hour in Big Jagger right <laughs> now. And uh, I was satisfied. I, mean, I wanted it, but I I wasn't like the crime. Talk about execution even the best laid battle plans get thrown out the window an old rabbi in Hawaii told me years ago you want to tell them that laugh tell them the plans <laughs> I think of Central Park and Garth Brooks. You know, Brooks something that almost went awry what happened and how did you pull it back in a couple things went awry okay well I have half a million people it turned out to be one of the best up, he comes up from underneath the stage, right? That's how he makes his entrance, and I'm uh, set up to do a close-up that's going to work through you know, his face as he's coming up through the elevator, and that's my opening shot. After the incredible opening I did, he shaved his beard off five minutes before the show and didn't tell me. So when he came up, there was this egg face that was stolen from just shaming, and that's how it started. Then I had these rail cameras, okay, that were inspired by, because he had like a 200-foot stage. He would run all the way across, and they were inspired by those shots in the Olympics where they would do the hundred yard dash, and the camera was perpendicular and going along right with them. It just created a really interesting background. And so I was gonna do that with cars. I had these rail cameras ready to chase them. or people right next to them. And the first time I took a rail camera and house they had them going around curbs. They went around the curb and flew off the curb and flew <laughs> off into the night. So that was the second thing that was screwed up. And the third thing is that the stage caught on fire. <laughs> the top of the stage. Now, this I shifted into like covering a news event. Only reason it worked is I was so prepared. Yeah. Okay. And so planned. And every shot was planned and every camera. Those camera meetings the longest camera meetings in history. They would go 12, 14 hours where I explained every shot, every angle, every focal length to every single camera I wanted to shoot at that moment. And I had a camera I was going to be on. So when the mistake happened, and I went off plan. play, I didn't have improv, I was going to play on the compulsion. And, therefore, I never lost it. Now, there's another really interesting, wild story about this. I was scared to death. Okay? It was the most expensive show in the history of HBO. There's a good interview, by the way. (laughs) I was on it. It was the most expensive show in the history of HBO. It was on my shoulders. It was a lot. Half a million people. And the night before the rehearsal, it rains. We didn't get much rehearsal. They were rocking back and forth in my chair, and there were no truck candles all around, hoping that, you know, war will (laughs) start. And uh, I had this driver who would drive me to the set every day. And my family, and during their setup, and had my conversations. Yeah, you know, I was telling everybody you know, that I was with us, you know, this is the most nervous I've ever been. And then two things happened before the show.
1: Mm-hmm. The
0: first thing that happened was Jerry Levin, who was the head of the company, came up to me and walked into the truck, whispered in my ear. He said, there's nobody on Reddit that might send a million on than you. Wow. That kind of relaxed me, but it's even weirder is my son, Texas, brought me a note. He said, and I had this Israeli driver, Jewish guy, Uh now Jewish, and he brought me a note, a limo driver, he said, Marty, don't worry, God is watching you from a distance. Wow. Uh, I'm getting goosebumps right now. Ben song. So, I, so I took this as a sign yeah. that everything was going to be okay. A <laughs> mitzvah. It was a mitzvah. Now the next day, I think it was the post, the Daily News came out, and their opening line was, this is going to really make you raise your eyebrows. Thanks to the blessed direction of Marty Caldwell and Brian Brooks. Now, the blessed direction of Marty Caldwell. Worldly and I forget about and it. And that's and that's a true story. I swear to God. Wow, it kind of relaxed me and gave me a little confidence. And then I got on fire. <clears throat> that was in a live show, you start out nervous, yeah, yep. you get into it, you don't realize it's live anymore, and you get on fire. You're in the groove, and right? She said, like, hey, where the hell's a camera guy hanging from? Did that? And all the 360. And the what was it? And he ended up just getting weight one up after that. <laughs> uh, i then I knew God. I saw the song which you sang, the big lyrics. And I decided I was going to do it a while. It uh, doesn't
1: work. You know, I think we had one rehearsal that was fucked up, and I still did it.
0: And the shot was that he was standing on, like, a pogo stick at the top of that square garden, and I had some banners in front, so he was going through something. Mm-hmm. He came down through the banners onto the stage where I had him unhooked from behind. And he did a little dance with Mark. And then when Mark went upstage, yep. over the ramp, I had him go around and meet him. hook him up to another fellow girl, and then Mark. Mark went upstate. was, here, was back, that's that's, Oh, Jesus, God. Uh, nobody, nobody's ever noticed that. I mean, nobody's ever noticed the shot. I mean, and that's good. You're not, you're not even supposed to think about it. You're not to want to realize. You yeah. know what you want. What? Uh, you, you don't want the form oh, of oh, the content. That was a cool idea. Mark went for it. Mark loved it. He's one of my best friends. And, uh, uh you know, I just posted a song about my story, other Dick, for him called My um, baby, you and he said, Oh, yeah, I remember Yes, or, or the last time he ever performed it. Did you want to have some fun? I put all these stories in my highlights, story highlights on Instagram. So if you go, if you go to Instagram, it has kind of on the highlight, and those little bubbles, the one that says story. And I, I try to put everyone in there. So you think she said, Oh, you can swipe up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I have enough followers. You can swipe up. It's cool, and, and I just—I know I love the most. I'm proud of everything I've been in there, and I well, We're going to definitely retweet and push to that in the last eight minutes that we even have, yeah, yeah, and I'm yeah. Just so you know, like, we'd be honored to potentially have time in your violently busy schedule to have you back. Everything on comedy I've put aside all the incredible. Uh, uh, oh, uh, you sweet. So I want to talk about two women, important women in your life, if you don't mind. And that is, first of all, how did Stevie Nicks change your life? I'm sorry. I just finished Tableau on Broadway. It was kind of a Waterloo.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, it, uh, was, it was right there in the Midwest and was on the West Coast and East Coast. Uh, I was a little down, and it was tough. It was Richard Harris. And I had a to stay. He'd direct the play because the director walked out when he couldn't do the video. And I did the television burial, you know, and it was really expensive. And I worked for HBO, which was owned by Time Life. Mm-hmm. Time Life is a magazine company, so they used to give you assignments. I didn't know anything about rock and roll. <laughs> Nothing. Okay, I knew mean, the Beatles. I knew Zephyr. I was like, doing concerts with Wise Minnelli and Diana and people like that, you know, who were pretty much pop stars. And I said, Your next assignment is Stevie Nicks. I said, Okay. That next morning, I got on a plane all blurry. I slept all the way to LA in those days. I mean, I can meet you at the gate. Oh, you So. Know? Hazel, who's a very legendary man of the greatest society in history. history met me at the gate and said, Are you ready to meet Stevie? I said, Sure, where is he? <laughs> and that's how it started. <laughs> and he said, He's a Dantana. So we go to, to Dan, the restaurant in LA. We go to yeah. And we're both doing Easter. Beautiful woman sitting there. He says, Morning, call her Stevie next. And I started laughing. so then she started laughing. Mm-hmm. And and to make this very short, I didn't leave her house for the next three months. No, affair. was like that. But, but I was so mesmerized by her magic, her realness, her honesty. And just came from Broadway, which was awful. Awesome. Right. People pictured about dressing rooms and lines and pettiness with um, this wonderful magician, magical girl. I want to say witchy because I didn't tell her that way. Right. And and I just was mesmerized if you look at that first show I did with her Belladonna that a shot so much love and passion and uh. uh, determined to make her look the most beautiful woman in the world. And she sold up the main records the next thing after there. <laughs> I But on the very first went back to that. You know, Stevie, to us, mere you know, mortals seems like this angelic being who was sent down from the heavens to minister to our hearts and minds. It seems to me she has this eternal, timeless essence to her soul. What well, makes her so magical when you're that close with her, working, seeing it? Well, you, you just described it as exactly what does her soul, her heart, her realness, her... Rate of ability, which is unparalleled. Her voice, her eyes, her talk, her lips—there everything. She's she is that person. She is angelic, and she's sweet, mm-hmm. and she's kind, and she's generous, and she's warm, and she's. She's all that stuff do you know what well, her art's some of the most important things and so how do you decide to light someone so ethereal like that where your choices party as director lands for us as an audience and our soul almost as if what you do is an extension of Stevie's lyrics and music so how do you make those decisions knowing you're there on the stage with her for us I'm watching it so many times that I get a vision for what I want to look like and then I and made that visual to the actual people that make it happen. And that's why each song is different to me. Mm-hmm. Song, and, and I, I know it's ton about lighting. And, you know, I'm very good at lighting. I'd I, I, I say to saying lighting next to God because I learned about lighting when I'm shooting all the work, And, you know, I, I studied it. And I just wanted to give each song its own mm-hmm. magical feeling. And that concert, I swear to you, is, is unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> well, I love there. Yeah, there's a Tom Petitumber, I Need to Know, she looks uh, as hard to describe how she looks. Yeah. And there's those last two songs, Edge of Seventeen, going to New Rihanna. And New Rihanna, she's very emotional. it's the uh, so last night on tour, we're to A very short tour with a special band that put together. It was the first time she was away from asleep or not mm-hmm. and she was bummed because it was over yeah. I got all that I told all that you, her. You know, and I just, it shows up it's just as palpable now as 1981 when it, when it was shot you know Stevie Nicks is the only artist I've ever heard that can make me feel the blissful like hopelessness of budding love in a song in one moment and then later the like, crushing agony of defeat of love having been lost with the exact same song I'm thinking leather and lace i Slide, what you did when you brought in the harmonies and you shot them on Love and Lace and the way that you would dissolve, it feels like what you're able to do is elevate my experience of a song, not to take away from any artist, in a way we're just hearing a song on the radio can't, that that visual somehow amplifies an artist's intention. Do, do you work with them in terms of that, or is that all instinctual to bring it after? Well, it's like, like I said, I was a vision. I'll tell you a story about sleeping albums got fired for this too. Mm. I was known for my being over the top Java's spectacular. And then I watched Sleeping Back and me and T I don't remember the warmers album. <laughs> I'm to take it as if you're sitting in the front row. And the song I'm most proud of, there's a couple of them. One's So Afraid by Lizzie Buckingham. It's Haunting. The Contra's Haunting. It's called, I think it's The Mirage Tour. It's from 1982. Mm-hmm. And Stevie and Lizzie were in the eight part of their love relationship. relationship. Oh, and there's a song called The Chain. <laughs> yes. And if you watch The Chain, the interaction that I caught, between you because of where my cameras were and because of what I decided to shoot is to this daddy will make you feel something. And we also said something else which is what I always strive for is that it holds up. Okay, and that's what I'm most proud of, is that the stuff holds up. And that, and that means it had to be great to begin with. It's bigger than me. It's my i worked really hard i was relentless It took one moment at a time one show at a time one video at a time i didn't think about the money it's never been about the money you work for the money and never have any money right. i just worked for the art and the love and everything else took care of itself and speaking about love but i know we're out of time here i'm sure i may have to say the next yeah. time the story about how you met eliza beautiful. I know it's a longer story, so maybe I'll start for this one. Yeah, well, so the Yeah. I'm have to go. through the best podcast I've ever been on. Uh-huh. I've been on a lot of great ones. uh uh-huh. You really, you've prepared Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Connie. It's obvious. Uh-huh. I respect that. It comes from my passion of craft. I've grown up on your work. My teenage angst and hormones were driven by your music videos. The work you do has touched the lives, of hearts, of millions of people. We thank you for who you are and what you continue to do, and we'd be
1: honored to have you back to get through the other 40% that we didn't get a chance to touch on